Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. Were the Anti-Federalists right? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but I've got a great Black Friday sale. Use the coupon code BLACKFRIDAY23 at checkout in the month of November 2023. And get 35% off every single class. That includes the bundles, everything I've got. It's the best deal of the year. 35% off Black Friday 23 is the coupon code. Of course, if you're on my email list, you've already gotten the emails about it. So you want to go over there and click those links. This is it. You're not going to get a better deal at all. And so you might as well stock up on McClanahan Academy while you can at 35% off. I know people are looking to make... Uh, plans for Christmas and what kind of gifts you're going to get. These courses make great gifts. Of course, they keep this podcast free of charge as well. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, the shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You, of course, can click on the heart button if you're watching on YouTube. This is super thanks button. Go to Spotify for podcasters, or store a few pennies my way. All those things are great. I'd love the financial support. I do appreciate all of it. But you can also support the show painlessly by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help the show. And send me their show requests, like this one. This is a listener-generated episode. And it's something that people have asked me about a number of times. Because, well, um, again, I got this in my email inbox it made a great topic. Now, this article is actually six years old. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can send me things from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you want, and ask me to comment on them. And this is something I'll be doing in 2024. In fact, the next on-demand classes at McClanahan Academy are going to focus on the anti-federalists. Over at McClanahan Academy, I have a course called the Originalist Papers. It is four classes. You can get the bundle for it, save even more money. It is an awesome set of classes because I go through 101 documents in favor of ratification of the Constitution. I'm going to do the exact opposite next year. So be on the lookout for that anti-Federalist papers next year. But right now, you've got the Originalist papers. And why do I focus on the Friends of the Constitution first? Because that's the Constitution we should be following. That's Originalism. You follow the Constitution that was argued for during ratification, not the one that the anti-Federalists said we would get. There's a real danger in that. This is exactly what Joseph Story did in his commentaries on the Constitution. He took the arguments against the document and said this proves this is what the document would do. The Anti-Federalists, even though they turned out to be right, 
are problematic because if you say, well, uh, if, if you want to be disingenuous, you can say, well, this is what they said it was going to do and this is what it did. You could also take someone like John Jay and do the exact same thing. Jay was much more nationalist, but he was in the vast, I mean, he was minority, right? John Jay was in, was in the smallest minority you can find. I was going to say vast minority. Smallest minority you can find. John Jay was not indicative of the proponents of the document at all. So when we talk about this anti-federalist group and this piece at Mises Wire, I was written by Alana Mercer, who writes a lot of great stuff, but again, six years ago. When you understand what was happening, that the opponents of the document, they weren't real anti-federalists either. I'm going to talk about that. They weren't real anti-federalists and they were opponents of the document. When the opponents of the document said it was going to do X, Y, and Z and the proponents, the friends said, no, it's not. That's why we pay attention to the friends of the Constitution. It makes us feel good to see that there were people that said, hey, it's going to do all these bad things and this is what we got. At the end of the day, people should have listened to these opponents a little more carefully there should have been many more safeguards in the document against what they said would happen. For example, the most important thing was centralization. There wasn't enough teeth in the Tenth Amendment, in other words. This is the problem. The Tenth Amendment has no enforcement mechanism other than the states. And when you talk about nullification or secession, well, then you run into problems because people would say, well, there's, there's nothing the Constitution says you can do that. Well, that's because it's an implied power of the states. It's a reserve power, more importantly. Uh, you see, when James Wilson, James the Caledonian, in October of 1787, goes to the State House yard and he says, look, here's the thing, I'm going to paraphrase. The Constitution has these enumerated powers. That's all it can do. That's all the federal government can do. It can't do anything beyond those enumerated powers. The state's powers are limitless and undefined. In other words, that would be an implied power. And Article 1, Section 10 has no prohibition on secession. It has no prohibition on nullification. You can say, well, you got that supremacy clause. Yes, all laws made in pursuance of the Constitution. So if it's not made in pursuance of the Constitution, meaning that it's an unconstitutional law, the states would be powerful enough to check it, as was argued during the ratification process. So in other words, the enforcement mechanism has always been the states. But as Calhoun and others pointed out, we need some explicit language in there so that we know how this is going to work. This is what Madison and Jefferson were saying in 1798. Well, the states just won't enforce these unconstitutional laws. They're clearly unconstitutional. The Alien and Sedition Laws violate the First Amendment. They violate the Tenth Amendment. So if they violate the amendments, the states, as equal partners in this union, have an obligation to interpret the Constitution. This is the whole argument against the Supreme Court. State courts are not subsidiary courts of the federal courts. They're not inferior courts. They are state courts. A state Supreme Court is at the same level as the federal Supreme Court. The state Supreme Courts are not inferior. When you have this appellate role, though, when state Supreme Court decisions can be appealed to a federal court, that makes them inferior courts, and that was not what they are. In the 1860s, the Confederacy operated without a Supreme Court because state court decisions were final. That's the way it would work. I talk about this and how the Supreme Court screwed up America. Another great class at McClanahan Academy. I've got so much stuff out there. American Constitutions, Originalist Papers, how the Supreme Court screwed up America. All these things get into these particular issues. 
even my class on secession, reading secession, my straight class on secession, all this stuff. There's so many good things at McClanahan Academy. When you get out of those classes, you're going to be able to win virtually any debate on these topics. Guaranteed. So let's, let's talk about this uh, particular piece. So Mercer says, on the eve of the federal convention and following the, its adjournment in September of 1787, the Anti-Federalists made the case that the Constitution makers in Philadelphia had exceeded the mandate they were given to amend the Articles of Confederation and nothing more. Well, this is true. I mean, that's an argument they made, and they did. I mean, look, when these men showed up in Philadelphia, only a few thought that we were going to radically transform the central government. Most that showed up thought, okay, we're going to amend the Articles, we're going to make it a little better, give a little stronger general government. What's interesting about that is that some of these amendments, right, the the Patterson plan, the New Jersey plan, would have actually been stronger on centralization than what people argued for the Constitution. It actually had explicitly a federal negative of state law. And that plan, of course, was rejected. In fact, that entire premise was rejected in Philadelphia. Didn't matter if it was coming from James Madison or Patterson of New Jersey. It, nobody wanted that except for a few people in the Philadelphia Convention. But, again, I would say these people are not anti-federalists. They're, they're opponents of the document. In fact, they were the real federalists. That's what they wanted. They were afraid we were getting bulldozed by nationalists. The federal constitution augured ill for freedom, argued the anti-federalists. These unsung heroes had warned early Americans of the ropes and chains of consolidation, in Patrick Henry's magnificent words, inherent in the new dispensation. At the very least, and after 230 years of just such consolidation, it's safe to say that the original Constitution is a dead letter. Well, it was dead in 1789. It was dead when we've got the first Judiciary Act. And that first Judiciary Act allowed for appellate state Supreme Court decisions to be appealed to federal courts. That's when it was dead. And again, I've said this on this podcast before. I've said it at McClanahan Academy classes. It's really funny when people try to um, to get me on this. Oh, you're saying you don't like the Constitution. I'm saying the Constitution has many, many flaws. But the important thing to note, and we'll get to it in this piece, is that we don't even live with this Constitution anymore. That's a whole other story. The natural and common law traditions, once lodestars for lawmakers, have been buried under the rubble of legislation and statute. However much one shovels the muck of lawmaking aside, natural justice and the founder's original intent remain buried too deep to exhume. Well, that's true. I mean, you have to be careful that when you talk about natural law and common law traditions, you, you kind of teeter into the West Coast Straussians and also in the common law tradition that works very well for the left. Because that's essentially an unwritten constitution. You have to be very careful of it. Having a written constitution was something that was important. And it was important because it was the exact opposite of the unwritten model that we had in Great Britain. Where courts decide what your rights are. So you can say this, we're working against natural rights here. But even there you have an English Bill of Rights. So these things are written down. But the courts or the common law tradition get to decide how these things work. You have to be very careful with these positions. Consider, America's constitution makers bequeath a central government of delegated and enumerated powers. 
The Constitution gives Congress only some 18 specific legislative powers. Nowhere among these powers is Social Security, civil rights, uh, predicated as they are on a grotesque violation of property rights, Medicare, Medicaid, and the elaborate public works sprung from the general welfare and interstate commerce clauses. We reduce the Constitution to a series of clauses anyways. I mean, it's we have this clause, that clause, this clause. It's not taken as a whole. It's just clauses. Now, of course, when the Constitution was being argued during ratification, they broke it out that way too. But when you reduce something to clauses, that then becomes the Constitution. You see? But that doesn't even matter anymore because of something else. There is simply no warrant in the Constitution for most of what the federal Frankenstein does. Well, this is true. In terms of, of the powers that they grant themselves. I mean, the structure is there, right? If you look at the structure of government, it's there. We still have the three branches. You know, there are many things the federal government follows in the Constitution. But in terms of the powers and the legislation the Congress passes, the President signs, and the Supreme Court upholds, yeah, I mean, all of that, for the most part, nowadays is unconstitutional. You can make a case that defense spending is constitutional. This is where Republicans fall back on. I'm critical of defense spending. I've talked about it this week. I'm critical of it because of what it does to domestic policy and because it creates a big mess. But you could make an argument in terms of if you look at how we spend domestic money like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid compared to how we spend on foreign policy, defense, only one of those has a constitutional argument defense spending. The others do not. So in terms of the money that Congress spends, you can make a clearer argument for defense spending than you can for domestic spending. That's a fact. It's much more difficult to have any kind of constitutional argument for domestic spending. So Security, Medicare, Medicaid, welfare, federal funded internal improvements, federal corporations. I mean, take your pick grants, education, all of that stuff would be, I mean, look, the founding generation was said it's all unconstitutional. All that stuff is. Now, spending money on air defense, you know, airplanes, bombs, firearms, all that is constitutional because it's defense spending. I mean, you're, you're paying for the army. So there is that. The Welfare Clause stipulates that Congress shall have the power to provide for the general welfare. And even though the general, general clause is followed by a detailed enumeration of the limited powers so delegated, our overlords over decades have taken Article 1, Section 8 to mean the government can pick the people's pockets and proceed with force against them for any perceivable purpose and, pro, and, pro, and project. Right? I mean, this is true. That's what it's decided it can do. Now, we know that general welfare, this is actually explicitly discussed in Philadelphia. And the Pennsylvania delegation tried to say, well, general welfare meant we can do X, Y, and Z. And that was explicitly rejected in Philadelphia. They knew what the general welfare meant. It was the good of the union. And that didn't mean pet projects. It didn't mean a bank. It didn't mean federally funded internal improvements. It didn't mean any of that. Building a road in the middle of a state that most people are never going to travel on is not for the general welfare of the Union. No matter what Henry Clay said in the 1820s and 30s. Got a great class on that, too. 
the age of Jackson, where I cover Henry Clay. No matter what Henry Clay said, no matter what Abraham Lincoln said, no matter what Alexander Hamilton said, no matter what all these Whigs, these national Republicans said, it wasn't for the general welfare of the Union, it was to line someone's pockets. And of course, this is what you can say about modern defense contractors as well. I talked about that last week. Today, federal courts are in the business of harmonizing laws across the nation rather than allowing communities to live under laws they author, as guaranteed by the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. Yes, that is true. That's because we don't live under the original Constitution anymore. We live under a different Constitution, something I talk about quite extensively in how the Supreme Court screwed up America. We live under the 14th Amendment Constitution. The 14th Amendment is now the Constitution, at least according to the Supreme Court. There isn't really any other Constitution. That's every, every single argument goes back to the 14th Amendment when it's a conflict between the states and the federal power. It's a 14th Amendment issue. It doesn't matter if it's commerce. doesn't matter if it, I mean, take your pick. Civil rights doesn't matter. All those things, and even civil rights, fall under commerce as defined by the 14th Amendment. You see? They don't even refer back to the original document anymore. It's the 14th Amendment. And the left has recognized this, and they're unashamed at saying it now. Noah Feldman, Eric Foner, even on the right, someone like Randy Barnett, Calls himself a 14th Amendment originalist. You've got a Supreme Court justice sitting on the bench now as a 14th Amendment originalist. It's absolutely lunatic, lunacy. These people are lunatics. It's lunacy to say that there's a 14th Amendment originalism. Now, if you want to say you're Raoul Berger, well, then maybe. But the 14th Amendment was never designed to do exactly what it's doing. Ever. To say the 14th Amendment is the Constitution is to distort the entire document. It is the most destructive amendment out of all the amendments. Through one amendment, you can't change the entire Constitution unless you abolish it. But I talked about the 14th Amendment when it came to Trump. And, uh, I mean, this is what people are doing. In American federalism, the rights of the individual are secured through strict limits imposed on the power of the central government by the Bill of Rights and the division of authority between an autonomous states and a federal government. States have been entrusted with the power to beat back the federal occupier and void unconstitutional federal laws. States' rights are an essential Americanism, wrote old rights federal, uh, Frank Chodorov. The founding fathers, as well as the opponents of the Constitution, agreed on the principle of divided authority as a safeguard for, to the rights of the individual. Well, this is true, um, and you could say that if, if, if not for federalism, if not for the sales job by the proponents of the document and saying, look, we had a real federal constitution, it never would have been ratified. That was the whole point. The opponents of the document kept hammering that this thing is going to consolidate power. It's going to be dangerous to the states. The proponents said, no, nah, it won't. Don't worry about it. We have a real federal republic here. Even Hamilton was using language like that. Even James Wilson in Pennsylvania would use language like that. No, no, no. This thing isn't going to abolish the states. It's not going to annihilate the states. The states are essential. They're the pillars of the government. Of course, the antis are right that it would do it, but that's not how it was sold. 
Dooley, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison perfected a certain doctrine of the Virginia-Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. The Virginia Resolutions explains the story in Thomas E. Woods Jr. spoke of the state's rights to interpose between the federal government and the people of the states. The Kentucky Resolutions used the term nullification. The states, they said, could nullify federal laws that they believed to be unconstitutional. Jefferson emphasizes Woods, considered states' rights a much more important and effective safeguard of people's liberties than the checks and balances among the three branches of a federal government. Well, true. The states are the fourth leg of the stool, not the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is the fifth column. It always has been. The bureaucracy is the fifth column in the general government. It is the column that disrupts the entire system. Because the bureaucracy allows for all of this unconstitutional stuff to happen. Now, Congress has made it, has created the bureaucracy. But the bureaucracy is the disruptor. The states were always part of that four-legged stool. It was the fourth leg of government. They were the fourth leg of the government. In fact, they were the cornerstone of the government. This is, again, the pillars, as Hamilton said. And for good reason. While judicial review was intended to curb Congress and restrain the executive, in reality, the unholy judicial, legislative, and executive federal trinity has simply colluded to in an alliance that has helped to abolish the Tenth Amendment. Yeah, I mean, true. The, the general government now has unlimited power. You know the drill, but are always su uh, surprised anew by it. Voters pass a law under which a plur plurality wishes to live. Along comes a U.S. District Judge and voids the law, citing a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. For example, voters might elect to prohibit government from sanctioning gay marriage. A U.S. District Judge voids voter-approved law for violating the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. These periodical uh, contratemps around gay marriage are perfectly proper judicial activism heralded by the 14th Amendment. Yet not even conservative constitutional originalists are willing to cop to the propriety of it all. If the Bill of Rights was intended to place strict limits on federal power and protect individual and locality from the national government, the 14th Amendment effectively defeated that purpose by placing the power to enforce the Bill of Rights in federal hands, where it was never intended to be. Now, that's only through Supreme Court interpretation. We know in 1883 the Supreme Court actually said that didn't happen, right? That's the slaughterhouse cases. Those were all Republicans, who had been around during the debate process and understood what was happening. They said, no, no, this isn't the case. The Bill of Rights, the, the 14th Amendment doesn't apply the Bill of Rights to the states. The 14th Amendment doesn't do any of that. It doesn't, it doesn't create a centralized despotism. No. It was very specific in what it was doing. The Bill of the, the 14th Amendment was going to ensure that freed slaves could own property and sue in court. That was the whole point. That was the privileges and immunities that they were talking about. To own property and sue in court. That's it. Sit on juries. Make sure that people couldn't be denied that. Because you see, the idea was that, well, they might be federal citizens, but they're not citizens of our state. And so they don't have these privileges and immunities. This was actually going directly after the Dred Scott decision. See, they understood that. There was, there was a very important part in the Dred Scott decision where Tawney got into this. Federal versus state uh, citizenship. And they needed to go after that. But that didn't mean anything else. It didn't create this whole list of unenumerated 
rights and powers and everything else, this whole list of things that people couldn't couldn't do. It didn't do any of that at all. That's what the courts have done with it. And only really in the last half century have they done this with it. Put differently, matters previously subject to state jurisdiction have been pulled into the orbit of a judiciary. The gist of it, Jefferson's Jeffersonian constitutional thought is no longer in the Constitution. It's revival unlikely. Well, true. To an extent. Though I do think that Americans are more receptive to decentralization now than they ever have been. The problem is you have the inertia going in the other direction and the federal government is never going to agree with any of this. The Supreme Court, the Dobbs decision, just look at what happened. Dobbs decision comes out it returns this issue of abortion back to the states, where it belonged. The states go and do things with it. The left is relatively happy with this now, but conservatives are not. They want nationalization. You see? The left figure out, well, we can put this issue in the states. We can win at the state level. Once this happens, I mean, there's, there's you look at the 2023 you know, election here and there's been a lot of talk about it, how cultural conservatism, the culture war is dead, right? The conservatives have lost on this issue. Maybe they overplayed their hand on Roe v. Wade, Dobbs. Maybe they've done that. But I think the culture war is still there. Though, if you get young people, if you mobilize young people who have no clue most of the time about whatever the heck is going on in the world, they just, they're all emotional basket cases. If you mobilize young people and you get them out to vote, and we know voter turnout was very low in a lot of these states, well, you can win on these issues. You can, the left can win. But um, here, here's the thing. I'm not so certain all of it's dead yet. But I think people have decided they want to have you know what they would consider to be common sense on these issues. This, we're common sense. This is common sense. Uh, and the left has, has run on it, and people are motivated by it on the left to go and, and uh, take care of these things at the state level now. But all th this, this might be a death knell in some ways. It might actually work against federalism for conservatives because they're going to look at this and say, well, federalism doesn't work. Look what happened. We got all this stuff. Now all these things are happening. We, we can't do this. We got to have all this stuff come from the center. We got to have a one-size-fits-all policy in the culture war, or we're going to get all this chaos, and we don't win. You gotta you gotta win the arguments. You gotta win the arguments at the state and local level. That's where politics really happen. That's where you gotta win. The left for years is bulldozed at the center because they don't want to win the arguments. The right was very effective at winning these arguments along for, for many years. Look at affirmative action. It was defeated everywhere. They've fallen back. They're not winning arguments anymore. As ardent a defender of the Constitution as constitutional scholar James McClellan was, he even he conceded, sadly, that the Constitution makers were mistaken to rely on the good faith of Congress and their observance of the requirements of liberty to reign in the uber-presidency in the making. Nor has Congress prevented the rise of a, legislative, a legislating bureaucracy, the deep state, and an overwhelming judiciary. Overweening, I'm sorry, judiciary. A judiciary that has, of late, found in the Constitution a mandate to compel commerce 
by forcing individual Americans to purchase health insurance on pains of a fine. Now, she gets right to the heart of the issue there. Congress is the real issue. Congress is the entity that's really screwed up America. There is no enforcement mechanism in the Constitution. There never has been. This is the problem. The Tenth Amendment needed teeth. And it didn't have any. This is why Calhoun started talking about the concurrent majority. We needed some amendments. We needed to do something. He recognized it in the 1840s when he was writing this. Of course, he dies in 1850, published after his death. But he recognized these problems then. If we don't do something about this now, we're doomed. He was right. Meanwhile, John G. Roberts Jr., a conservative, rewrote Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act and then proceeded to provide the fifth vote to uphold the individual mandate undergirding the law, thereby undeniably and obscenely extending Congress's taxing power. Buried in the constitutional thickets are huge presidential powers, conceded historian Paul Johnson in his History of the American People. The American president was much stronger than most kings of the day, rivaled or exceeded only by the great autocrat, the Tsar of Russia, and in practice stronger than most Tsars. These powers were not explored until Andrew Jackson's time, half a century on, when they astonished and frightened many people. But see, that's not how it was sold. In fact, you look at Federalist 69, Hamilton makes great pains to say the presidency is, is inferior to the king of Great Britain. The president only has these powers because Congress lets the president get away with it. That was the whole point of nine presidents who screwed up America. Or when I was writing the Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution in 2012 and I said every president should be impeached. That was the point. They've gone beyond. Congress has not stepped up and said, you can't, go, you, you can't do this. You're going to be impeached for violating your oath of office. This is why John Tyler is the best president in American history. He's one of the few who didn't violate his oath of office. These days, a toss-up in any given election is between submitting to the Democrats' war on whites, the wealthy, and Walmart, or being bedeviled by the Republicans' wars on the world, Russia, China, Assad, and the Ayatollahs. Or suffering all the indignities listed and more in the case of candidates like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a funny line. She, goes, she combines all that stuff. That's the establishment. That's Joe Biden. That's the neocons. That's the West Coast Straussians. I mean, look, the West Coast Straussians are, are I, I pick on them a lot. They're right on some things. But when you start with Lincoln, you're going to get all this stuff. You see, they can't get away from that. If they would just ditch this Lincoln worship and the Republican worship of the 1860s, they would be a much more effective group of people. But that's what they have to do. They need to ditch it. And they won't. Because it shields them from charges of bad words. You see. They're gonna, but the dirty little secret is the left is going to call you those bad words anyways. Whether you are or not. They're going to call you those words anyways. The words of Republican office seekers notwithstanding... For most promised constitutionalism, a liberty lover's best hope is to see the legacy of the strong man who went before overturned for a period of time. In the age of unconstitutional government, Democratic and Republican, the best liberty lovers can look to is action and counteraction, force and counterforce in the service of liberty. Look, this is six years ago, and I, and I know she's making a point that you know we don't have, it's almost a hopeless essay, but I think there is hope. I do think the states are starting to stand up and realize that they have powers. They can actually do these things. 
Having prophesied that Philadelphia was the beginning of the end of the freedoms, one in the American Revolution, our anti-federalist philosophical fathers fought to forestall the inevitable. For that, we must salute them. Yeah, so, I mean, they were right about what they were saying that the government would do. That is not a badge of honor. We still need to listen to the, to the proponents of the document more than anything else. Okay, so, great essay, and again, submitted by a listener. If you want me to do more of this kind of stuff, send me those show requests, and I will cover, uh, I, I might cover it, right? I, may, I can't guarantee it, but I might cover it on the show, and you might hear your piece answered with my commentary. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.